Hi, and welcome to Emetophobia Help. I'm Anna Christie, recovered emetophobic and licensed psychotherapist specializing in emetophobia. These podcasts have a trigger warning of words associated with emetophobia. If you enjoy these podcasts or you find them helpful, you can buy me a coffee. Just scroll down in the notes, click on the link, and for a couple of bucks, you can support the podcast. So season four, here we go. Hi, everyone. Um, We're back and I'm here today with um, Jenny Matthews, who is a licensed therapist in Minnesota. So welcome, Jenny. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say for any of the listeners who are also in South Dakota, because I know there's not a lot of therapists trained um, in exposure therapy out there. That's um, another state I'm licensed in, Um, but my home base is Minnesota. And I think you're on my therapist list on my website, are you not? I am. So I've got a little column that says what states people are licensed in. So just a tip, if you're looking for a therapist on my website at emetophobiahelp.org, and you kind of sort by the state, if someone's licensed in more than one state, it's going to come in alphabetical order of the first state that they're licensed in. So you have to kind of look through it. There are not that many therapists there. So we're looking for South Dakota. It'll be in there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So tell us about um, yourself and your practice in general, what kinds of things you do and so on. Yeah. So like I mentioned, I am based in Minnesota. Um, I practice virtually. So for people that are in Minnesota as well as South Dakota, but, um, I own a small practice here and it's myself and two others. Um, and we have a specialty in treating anxiety disorders and OCD. And so that is, kind of all we do and we love it. It is our, our bread and butter. And so we, uh, uh, treat people with, um, you know, anywhere from generalized anxiety to emetophobia to fear of flying to, um, every subtype of OCD. So it's, um, it's what we've been doing. I started the practice. When was it? Must've been my son is six now, about six years ago. So it was around the time that I had my son. So I I started it back then because when I was working as a, what I would call like a general therapist, like in different agencies, I had to work with anybody and everybody. And it was very hard to feel confident what I was doing because I, I I wasn't good at everything. It's just nature being human. And so, um, I then got some experience in, um, in exposure therapy, uh, work just with one of my clients and had really great success with her. And I got so lit up about the fact of like, I want to go do this more. And I just, this is all I want to do. And I want to work somewhere where I I can decide that that's all I want to do because I want to just work with where I feel like I can really help people. So yeah, that's that's great. That's great. That kind of describes me too. Mine's even narrower, of course, because I have this emetophobia history. So yeah. Um, but that's basically what I do. I own my own practice, I guess you can call it that. I'm just work as a, a single practitioner. Um, but I noticed on your website, you've got a couple of other people. And that's a great area too. I think a lot of people with emetophobia cannot find someone who mentions emetophobia um, as a treatment um, on 
their website, for example, or whatever. But if, if they treat anxiety disorders and OCD, they probably know how to treat emetophobia as well. So tell mm-hmm. us how you got into treating emetophobia. Yeah. You know, through the, the process of, you know, starting to do exposure therapy work and working with a variety of people that, uh, you know, had different anxiety disorders or OCD, uh, I of course got a handful of emetophobia cases and I've just found a love in it. I don't, I don't know why I don't have a emetophobia myself. I don't have that history, but I'm very comfortable in working with it, knowing that it's a very difficult disorder for people. And I have clients sometimes that, um, feel bad when I'm doing exposures with them because I, it's their fear. Yes. And they're like, I'm yeah. sorry that you have to do this too. And I'm like, I, it's okay. I'm not faced by this. Um, and so, uh, and perhaps that's helpful that for them to know that. And I, I think that is, I, I've, I've been told that it's helpful to see, like I have a non-reaction as I'm watching the same images or videos. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's very common. People, um, feeling bad for others, you know, that, uh, that they have to look at vomit, I guess. I don't, you know, people, some people ask me, oh, you look at vomit like all day long, (laughs) or you talk, talk about it. I think as soon as I hang up, you know, and I get off my computer, I don't even think about it ever again. Um, It's, it's really hard to be on the other side and to try to describe it to people, just as it's hard to be them and describe it to someone like you, for example, who has never had it, but um, you're, you're obviously a very understanding and compassionate person. So yeah, what have you found have been, you know, the difficulties or obstacles that you've faced in treating emetophobia? Hmm. Um, I think one of the biggest obstacles is that line between like the illness does happen and right. I don't know that there's really illness season anymore, so to speak, but there kind of is right. There's that time of year in the winter, especially here where I live where, you know, illness, especially norovirus really ramps up. And so it's very hard. Um, I find sometimes to then help people really take take necessary risks because they really feel like they should take that. And and they really struggle with knowing what is normal and what's not when it comes to being cautious about, you know, getting sick because, uh, it is sick season or, you know, nobody likes to get sick. So all these pieces, so that can be sometimes hard. And, um, and there's not, I don't think a black or white answer to how somebody should proceed with, you know, um, hand-washing for instance, because, people have various degrees, whether they have a metaphobia or not, like people just have various degrees of their own hygiene, uh, risk tolerance and all of that. So really helping people figure out like, what is the, um, you know, when is it a safety behavior avoidance? And then where do you find what's just your own preferences? Right? Yes, that's true. That's, that raises an interesting question. And I often ask, other therapists this because a lot of what I read about treating anxiety disorders and exposure therapy um, kind of counters what I think. So <laughs> I'll ask you like, okay, so some therapists think, or researchers, I should really say scholars in the field, believe that we should ask our clients to do some things that they wouldn't normally do. 
um, to the some of them are extreme. Like there was a guy I remember watching on a TV reality show that had people with OCD contamination subset, and he he made them put their hands inside a dumpster and then lick mm-hmm. their hands. Now, no normal person would do that. And my normal, I just mean, you know, neurotypical person. Um, but, but his argument on this argument that I've read in research is that you have to swing the pendulum way the other way for it to come back to a, a sort of normal, typical place. What are your thoughts about things like that? That's a, that's a great point. And it's something I talk about a lot with clients because I was trained, um, in that same kind of thinking that you have to, you have to do that. And so that is how I started, um, you know, treating people when it came to exposure was we have to, we have to really go above and beyond where most people would go. Um, I actually don't do that anymore. I think probably similarly to, to where, um, you feel it, it's just not necessary. Um, I just don't believe, and I don't know, I'm not a researcher, but I have clients who are getting better and they're not going above and beyond. We might do some things that are above and beyond, like, you know, this is, I I believe probably on, on your website too, as far as list of exposures, but you know, putting something in your mouth and pretending to throw it up in the toilet might be something to do. Like that's not really going above and beyond, but it's not like it's just a, something you might encounter accidentally. You obviously have to do that on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I just find that that that's enough. And, and so I, I just personally don't go above and beyond anymore. I don't feel like we need to do that. I know. Yeah. It's, um, uh, and I agree with you too. I don't ask my clients to do something that a, a regular person without emetophobia would not do. So if I've got the right grammatical construction there. Uh, yeah, I don't ask them to do things that, that wouldn't be kind of normal. Um, and it, but there is a thin line, as you were saying before, especially after COVID with how much hand washing is appropriate and, like I know in our grocery stores now, when you go in and you get a cart, they have like Lysol kind of hand wipes or Lysol wipe to wipe the handle of your cart. So obviously that's kind of normal now, you know, because mm-hmm. it's, there it is in the grocery store. Um, and I don't, I don't use them, but, <laughs> but I don't put my hand in my mouth either, you know, um, so. So people are like, well, yeah, but then I, I wipe off the groceries and I wipe all the cans and I went and then I think, oh, no, that's going too far. Like that's mm-hmm. not that's that's just going a bit too far. So if some little kid has their hands tightly on that shopping cart handle, there could be fecal matter on it. But your cans, I don't think so. Like that just seems. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Figuring out where to draw that line is, is always the conversation, um, to what's, what's, uh, just taking that safety precaution and and when is it, and we used to, you know, going through COVID, you know, and working with clients during that era, uh, we used to kind of say if, um, oh gosh, what was the, uh, little saying that we always said was like, is it CDC or OCD? I think that was like, oh, yeah. something, you know, like that was our, yeah. our guideline post. Mm-hmm. Like you're allowed to do whatever the CDC says, which, you know, um, changed a lot. Yes, so. it did change. Yeah. A lot of folks really thought that I think still maybe more in America than in Canada that, you know, the, the government and all the 
uh, I don't know, Dr. Fauci and those people didn't know what they were doing or they were lying to the public and blah, blah, blah. But they really, I think, didn't know. Like it was such a new virus. They did not know. Because at first here in Canada, even we were told to wipe our groceries mm-hmm. <laughs> and get your Amazon package and put it, sit it on a table for three days before you pick it up again. You know, stuff that yeah, there, and we could make cloth masks at home, which they now know don't do anything at all to help you. So, anyways, yeah, there, there, there were a lot of mistakes. And, um, while I could sympathize with people who might say, folks, they could have been lying. I don't know, you know, I don't know, but there are lots of stuff they didn't know. That's for sure. Um, Absolutely. so, uh, Talk about how you treat someone with who comes in with emetophobia. Um, you know, what, what do you do first and next? And if you don't mm-hmm. mind saying. Sure. So like most therapists do start with an assessment. I'm really getting, you know, an overview of um, the current problem they're coming in with, but also a history too. And, and just getting a lot of information about you know, where they've been, where they're at, where they want to go. And so I'm doing a lot of that. And then once we kind of take that next step to dive even a little deeper into, again, if the problem's a metaphobia, really assessing carefully about what are their, you know, avoidance behaviors or safety behaviors, things that are triggering. So really just kind of compiling a list of what's feeding the problem uh, and doing, and then I do a lot of education around that, helping people see that um, what's keeping your fear going are some of these behaviors. Um, and so the way to, to recovery is, is to stop the cycle somewhere and with exposure therapy, we do that through the behavior part, but there's other things that we do like through acceptance and commitment therapy, where we can address thoughts uh, more directly or um, inference-based therapy is another approach that I've been using, particularly with OCD. And I've been starting to um, experiment a little bit with it with um, my metaphobia clients as well. Um, but it is designed specifically for OCD as a cognitive approach. Can so talk a little more about that. I, I'm not very familiar with that inference-based therapy. Oh, yes. I had a feeling you're going to ask that. Oh, let <laughs> me put on the spot. <laughs> so it is, um, I'm not going to know uh, the exact numbers now, but it's actually been around for quite a while. I think actually originated in Canada, if I'm speaking accurately. Um, and so it's been around for a while. There's a lot of great research behind it to be a really effective evidence-based treatment for OCD. But in the States, it's just kind of come around in the last few years. And so it's kind of the, um, I don't know, the new thing in town, so to speak. And what's really great about it is that people now with um, OCD, and I think some therapists are using it with other anxiety disorders as well, because there is so much overlap. Um it is, it's nice to have additional options where it's not just a behavioral approach, it's a cognitive approach. And so what inference-based therapy does, in, if you think about the cycle between the time you get triggered by, let's say, anxiety or OCD, and then it ends with some type of behavior, right? You either avoid or you do a compulsion. There's all this stuff in between. After that trigger, you have a doubt, a what if, right? There's this possibility that pops up. And then it leads to what you fear would happen if that doubt were to be true. And then it entices a, an emotional response like anxiety or something. And then we, we do the compulsion. So that's what we talk about the sequence of what happens when, um, 
when somebody gets triggered. And in exposure therapy, we target the end part of that sequence. We target somebody's, you know, emotional levels. And then we also target through the behaviors, but in inference-based therapy, we go further upstream and we, uh, address the doubt. And the idea here is that the doubt was formed through a flawed reasoning process. And so we help mm-hmm. people under kind of, you know, unlift the veil and go, how did you come to believe this in the first place? There's some type of confusion that occurred that you bought into this, bought into a scary story. Um, and so we really can teach people about where their scary stories come from and some skills on how to not get confused between what's happening in reality and between a story that, well, you're conjuring up in your mind. Right. Yeah, that, that, um, just a little break halfway through to let you know about resources that you can find. First of all, I teach a set of 10 classes um, for people with emetophobia. And you can find information about those on my website at emetophobiahelp.org. I also have a Facebook group called Emetophobia No Panic. And you can look that up on Facebook. If you're listening as a therapist, There is a free website for you at emetophobia.net. It has all the resources you need for free to treat emetophobia. Dr. David Russ, child psychologist, and I recently published a book called Emetophobia, Understanding and Treating Fear of Vomiting in Children and Adults, and it's available at all online booksellers. And now back to our podcast. I mean, to me, I don't know if I I could use a better superlative than that, but um, it it seems like, yes, that's a good thing to talk about. I think it's good to talk with. And of course, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the research. There was, there's only been one study of emetophobia as it relates to OCD. And it kind of came to the conclusion that probably emetophobia is a is another subset of OCD because it seems as though everyone with emetophobia has OCD. I know that on my intake I do a Y box uh, assessment. Um, it's it's a it's a form you fill out, and, uh, you know, an instrument or a tool. And mm-hmm. I'd say on average, most of my clients, and I've had about two three hundred now score above 22, you know, like, so above, like, yeah, enough to maybe get a diagnosis of OCD. Not everyone, Mm -hmm. not, you know, there's always an exception. Some people way high, way, way high. Um, I know for myself, I had OCD, certainly as a child, I remember um, touching things and counting, flipping light switches on and off, counting, things like that, you know, and, um, (laughs) Here's a funny story. I probably told this story on my podcast before, but my dad, this is 1965, maybe 1965, right? And I said to my dad, I was about seven years old. Anyway, I said to my dad, why when I touch something, do I have to go one, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one, and touch all my fingers? And he said, well, um, that's called a habit. And the only way to break a habit is just to stop doing it. And and I also told him about the light switches. Yeah, he said those these are habits, and and you just need. To, my dad was a minister; he's very kindly man, you know. So he said you just have to stop doing it. And 
funny enough, that really is the way to get over OCD. Like, <laughs> He was making that up, and I did. I was just like, okay, I feel compelled to do it, but I'll just stop. Yeah, it's just a habit, so I'll just stop. So I'm still a counter. I still count things in my head that I don't need to be counting. But yeah, that was just sort of my little piece of OCD. But um, they are related. You know, OCD, as you know, used to be in the DSM-4 uh as an anxiety disorder, and now it's in five as um, it's got its own section, which, well, it should, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, you did yeah. mention right before you talked about inference-based therapy, you mentioned acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, which is mm -hmm. really the latest, well, it's, again, 20 years old at least, but uh, I call it the latest thing. But I still find that a lot of therapists, when they are working with um, people with the, uh, phobia, dysphobia for specifically, they will try to get the person whose anxiety goes up, they'll try to get them to bring the anxiety down. But ACT sort of tells us that that's not what you do. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about how you explain that to your clients? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like from an act-based approach, they're talking about the goal is really to change the way we relate to our thoughts rather than let them control us and jerk us around. And um, so there's more of a uh, an attitude shift that they really work on of how can we relate differently, create some more space between you and this thought. So we're not trying to get rid of it. We're not going to do something on purpose to eliminate it because actually the more we eliminate it, the more it sticks around, the more we struggle with it and it grows. So they really emphasize it. I emphasize it as well that, and I, I think it aligns with exposure-based therapy as well. Like um, the more you, you try to struggle with this, the, the bigger it grows. So ACT just teaches some specific different skills that exposure doesn't. Um, that's why the two actually pair really nicely together. Um, and ACT is also a little different in that, you know, it's like, okay, you don't have to go back to what we were talking about earlier. You don't have to go above and beyond, you know, with these exposures. We're going to focus on value-based living. What are you, what can you do and pursue, take action on that's aligned with who you want to be despite these uncomfortable thoughts, feelings, sensations that you're experiencing? And let's move towards that while you have some skills to let the anxiety come with for the ride. So you, you're not having to make up exposures. You're just going to focus on if this is in accordance with my value, I'm going forward and applying some other kind of mindfulness skills is a lot of what they'll use for kind of the, mm -hmm. how to get distance from thoughts. Right. Yes. I like it as well. Although probably the, the purest act people um, would not like me or what I do. Um, I'm not a purist in act in the sense that uh, I do still do exposure, but now instead, and the way I used to treat uh, and the way that I got over my own emetophobia was to, you know, have your 
expose yourself to something, have your anxiety go a little higher, and then try to bring it down, try to control it, try to make it go away. Um, I don't do that anymore. You know, I just have people say, well, what's the number zero to 10? And can you tolerate that? Can you accept it? You know, as well, this is just anxiety, and it's a body response, a body memory, la la la, those kinds of things. So mm -hmm. I still do the exposure. And I still give them homework to keep looking at the video until it doesn't really bother them anymore. But, but just that learning and the values based part of it is so great. Um, that's like, how can I, how can I still do some of the things in my life that I want to do and, and what I value? But some people, if, if their metaphobia is bad enough, they cannot. Mm -hmm. It's just like, you know, I want to take my kids to a jungle gym and be with other mums, but they can't, you know, they're, mm -hmm. they're paralyzed by their fear. So, um, right. yeah, a little bit of then some of the exposure and working and the tools and all of that stuff. Wow. It's a, it's, you're a person I could talk to all day. I could just shut off the recording. Um, <laughs> um, it's not everybody, not every therapist that comes on here, you know, I'm so in sync with, but with, um, and I didn't know you before at all, right? I mean, we don't yeah, know each right. other. No. Um, but so, some therapists that I interview I ha have really interesting other kinds of things that they that they do. Um, but the way you work with the metaphobics is the most evidence based way, definitely. Um, you also you also treat fear of flying and. Mm -hmm. Every emetophobic I work with is afraid of flying, but most of them describe themselves as being afraid of vomiting on the plane or sitting beside a guy that's a person who's vomiting on the plane. Um, can you talk a bit about how you work with people without emetophobia who have fear of flying? Yeah. Well, surprising, well, maybe not surprisingly, but um, it's pretty similar. You know, what's really great about these evidence-based approaches is the same foundation can be applied, but with some nuances or some differences. So the, the thing with fear of flying is, as you kind of mentioned, like, I mean, people with emetophobia have it and same with like maybe people with OCD or people with panic disorder, like you can have the fear of flying, but also some other, um, anxiety um, disorders, or it could be more of like, I'm just afraid of the plane and maybe there's not. And in fact, that's my own personal experience too. I, I have a, history of battling with flight anxiety. And so that's something that I've worked on overcoming and, um, but I don't have like, um, another attached, uh, like anxiety disorder with it. So right. mine's more a fear of the plane. <laughs> yes. Not fear of flying, fear of crashing, burning and dying. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which is extremely incredibly rare, but yeah. So how does, how do you yes. say someone comes in fear of flying, they don't have anything attached to it that you can, you know, what, what are the kinds of, you do exposure therapy of some kind? I don't even know. I'm, I'm, it's an honest question. Yeah. I wouldn't know how yeah. to treat it. Right. So similar, like I would do with any client after I've done kind of my general assessment, um, we're going to look at what are the things that you might be doing that are fueling the fear. So do a lot of work with helping people understand that there are some things you might be doing that, um, are fueling it. And, <clears throat> one of the things when it comes to like someone like myself, that's had more of fear of the plane crashing. You need a lot of education about how flying works. Not too much. I mean, we don't need to be like 
I don't know, you know, aviation uh, specialists or anything like you need a basic understanding to just develop some of that trust. I think, you know, some of that, sometimes I see people who have the fear of the plane crashing really get a little, um, too much. Like they're, they're spending too much time really trying to get that like information to feel crystal clear when, so that's kind of similar to what we were talking about earlier with the metaphobia. Like at some point we got to draw the line, right? Like sometimes we're going above what we really need to know or be doing to keep ourselves safe. And so, um, so if that's the person's core fear of flying is related to like the fear of crashing, um, we'll talk about just education around flying. And my husband happens to be a therapist with a history of being a, I guess I'd call him an aviator. He uh, has a private pilot's license and worked in uh, the Air Force for many, many years as a mechanic and flight engineer. So um, him and I actually created some courses to help people. So where he could, um, teach people about, well, he, he can teach to the anxiety and the the actual mechanics of flying. Um, and I can just teach on <laughs> the, the actual anxiety part. So, um, so getting people the education they need, um, is, is really critical. And then really helping people understand too, that you, you can learn as much as you can about fear. Um, but eventually you got to get in the plane, like, we can, we can give you tools, but you do have to start flying and then you got to practice flying without your safety behaviors. And so we talk a lot about what safety behaviors, you know, people might be doing so that they can then start to undo those the more they fly. So people without emetophobia, but with a fear of flying have safety behaviors. I'm totally curious about what those would be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some of the big ones, a lot of people have concerns around turbulence, of course. Um, and so there are these turbulence apps out there that people will look up before they fly and they will, it'll like predict the, like what kind oh, of turbulence yeah. they're going to okay. encounter. I get it. hundred yeah. yeah. percent. Don't recommend don't that. Don't do that. Do not. <laughs> don't if you're do listening it. and you never <laughs> thought of that, don't do it. Yeah. Yes. For one thing, I, uh, I, I've got, I've got a couple of really close friends who are Air Canada commercial pilots. And uh, the one thing they say, turbulence, they don't even care about it. It does not make planes crash. So no matter how turbulent it is, your plane's good. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And those are really inaccurate too. Oh, Um, I bet. Yeah. It changes all the time, doesn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. And so you can't... The thing is, you're not in control of the plane, right? The pilots have the instruments to navigate turbulence. They have their own more accurate systems that they use. It is their job to determine if the plane is safe to fly, regardless of turbulence or any other thing. So we have, it all comes back to trusting in, in the pilots. We, the more we're trying to do to like determine if it's safe is, is trying to control something we can't control. So The other thing people will oftentimes try to control similar to the turbulence is is weather. They'll be looking at the weather before they fly, making sure it's safe enough. They're even determining like, right, is it too windy to fly? Again, not your job. No. Your job is to be a passenger. And that's freeing. I know it's it's scary to let go of that, but it's also freeing to say, I don't have to be in control. There's no amount of me worrying or Googling Mm -hmm. is going to change this outcome. I can just... Be a passenger. Right. Just get on the plane. It'll be fine. 
Yes, I'm. Mm-hmm. My two Air Canada pilot friends are so smart, and they're so calm, and they're just so wise. And the number of protocols, and I mean, it's incredibly safe. Yes, incredibly safe. But I totally get. What about when you have an emetophobic client that's also afraid of flying? Is it sort of the same thing? They just eventually they just need to get on a plane. Yeah. And I think it kind of depends, you know, as far as like if someone's going to be, of course, right, like exposure, reducing safety behavior is really the same, you know, for someone with the metaphobia when they're dealing with the fear of vomiting, whether they're on the, the plane's just, you know, the place that they're being triggered. So there's really not much of a difference, but they're depending on when they're going to be flying, um, they they could be doing something and depending on where they're at in their recovery journey. Right. That's true. Yeah. You know, if, if you are fresh into this game of, of, you know, exposure therapy and trying to let go of your safety fears and you have a flight next week, it, it makes sense that you might need medication or you might need to do whatever it takes to get on that plane. And that's okay. Yes. Or suddenly your mom dies or something and you have to fly somewhere where you decided you were never going to fly, but you know, um, things happen and yeah. So whatever. Yes. At the beginning, People may need their safety behaviors. That's that's completely understandable. Well, that that's just very interesting. Very interesting for me, anyway. And I'm fascinated with I with aviation because I would not set foot on a plane when I had a metaphobia. There was no way you couldn't drag me on there screaming, and I would not have cared. I wouldn't shouldn't say I didn't care, but if my mom had died and she's a five and a half hour flight away, she would have been. Um, I, I wouldn't have done it. And then after I got over the emetophobia, I just decided to. Um, accept a nomination to a national committee, which met in Toronto, basically three to four times a year. And I was flying alone, and I just kept doing it. And it it was, it's great. I love it now. You know, it's it's absolutely wonderful. And that's another thing with a values, um, you know, what do you you value? Because you're on a plane for a reason of something that you want. You know, you want to get to maybe a vacation or or something, something, and to, to kind of focus on that. Yeah. Well, um, I, I liked your, um, website. I, I, I looked at your website. Can you remind, uh, listen, I will put it in the notes, but can you remind listeners of the website address for you? Yes. It's stateofmindtherapy.com. And also find me Instagram at that same handle. A state of mind therapy. Uh, or mm-hmm. on Instagram. Well, Jenny, you have been a wonderful guest and you're a lovely person. You know, I always, um, oh, thank I, you. I never want to, to do uh, audio or video along with audio because I would have to do my hair and makeup and that would take me two hours. But you're just so <laughs> beautiful and young and fresh oh. and uh, you'd make a great uh, guess, but for a video, but uh, you have one of those faces. I don't know what the name is, but uh, I know that I personally, I've said this before, I have resting bitch face. Um, so I have to always be smiling because I do have great teeth. <laughs> and so I'm trying to smile and not look like that, but you've got the opposite. You just look like such immediately Aww. you come across as so sweet and warm and 
Um, you're very knowledgeable. Mm. So if you're in Minnesota or South Dakota and you need to, someone look up Jenny Matthews, thanks again. Thanks, Anna. Okay, everyone, I have a new set of classes beginning in April and until March 1st, you can get an early bird price on those. So you just need to go to my website at www.emetophobiahelp.org slash classes.